Well, if you're just joining us this morning, we have been looking together over the past several weeks at the subject of forgiveness. It's a complicated subject, as I've been reminded every single week because I stand out on the bridgeway following the service, and there are more questions that come to me there than I ever can get around to answering sufficiently in our time of uh, reflection here. But we're going after that together, piece by piece, a little bit more each week, trying to unravel the mystery of this profound subject that is so significant in our life and the life of the Christian faith in particular. We've looked together at how hard forgiveness is and uh, why it's so particularly hard. Last week, we talked about why we might pursue it anyway, what would motivate us to actually seek to forgive somebody who has uh, wounded and wronged us significantly. Today I want to move on and think with you about the how of forgiveness. Uh, Supposing we actually got motivated enough to pursue the path of forgiveness with someone, what would it actually involve to move forward on that particular path? And to get at that particular question, I want to invite you to look with me today at the subject through the lens of one of the great stories of the Bible. If you'll open in your scriptures to Genesis chapter 50, uh, at verse 15, you'll be introduced to a text that we're going to be examining in detail together as we go along. You may find it helpful to have your Bibles open there uh, with me. Genesis chapter 50 and verse 15 read as follows. When Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, they said, what if Joseph holds a grudge against us, and pays us back for the wrongs, all the wrongs we did to him. Now, just in case you're not familiar with this story, let me provide the back tale, if I may, so it makes even more sense to us. Uh, Joseph was the 11th son of one of the great Hebrew patriarchs, Jacob. There was to be a 12th son, son later, though this latter son, Benjamin, was only a half pint at this particular moment in Genesis 50. So I suppose you could actually call this, if this was a television program today, this would be called 11 and a half men. Or as you'll see, it might even be more aptly entitled, Boys Behaving Badly. Uh, because that is exactly what transpires here, is a picture familiar perhaps to any of us who live with other human beings, of people behaving badly. I want to invite you to put yourself in the place of Joseph in this particular story. I want you to try and imagine yourself in his sandals, as it were, uh, right now. You are the, uh, the late-born child of a man in his old age. And perhaps because dad is now in a season of life where he has more time to pay attention to the children, you are a particularly uh, special child to him. And he shows that uh, care and attention to you in a way that, frankly, he does not show it to the ones born before in the family chain. And, And he lavishes attention and gifts and a beautiful coat and other things upon you, and your brothers notice. And all of this attention, frankly, goes to your own head a little bit. You become a little bit puffed up. You have these marvelous dreams of what your life will become, and you talk openly about this with your brothers, and increasingly they become embittered about you. 
In fact, they become so embittered, they decide one day they're going to get rid of you. They've had enough of you. And so one day as you're all out in the fields together, nine of them circle you. And you look up at these great big guys, the guys, frankly, that you admire greatly, and you're just stunned as they begin to pummel you and pummel you and they beat you bloody. Then they take you and they push you over into a deep pit, an old dry well, and they leave you there, battered and bloody, to die. Then, on second thought, they realize they can make money off of you. As a passing slave caravan comes by, they haul you up and out of the well and they sell you cheap to the slave trader. Now, you're dragged across hundreds, hundreds of miles of searing desert, your hands bound, pulled along. Every time you stumble and fall, which you do often because your legs are not that long and you're tired, every time you fall down, they beat you, they whip you, they cudgel you to get you up again and force you onward. And before you know it, you're standing there on an auction block in a slave market. You are just a kid. You're just a kid. Missing your mom and your dad so very far from home. And now these men are leering at you and they're poking you like you're some kind of piece of meat and one of them buys you. And he takes you home. And he puts you to work. And things are okay for a while, but then a big family dispute arises involving the the wife of of the household that's taken interest in you. And you get, before you even have a chance to explain yourself, you're not believed even when you do try to explain yourself. You're thrown into the deepest, darkest dungeon you've ever seen. You're left there amongst the stinking dung of that place to starve to death. Now, Imagine yourself there. How are you feeling at the thought of those brothers sitting back on the family veranda sipping mint juleps, Kool-Aid, whatever they drank? How are you feeling about them at that particular moment? And just suppose that somebody comes along by your dungeon and they peer down into the hole in which you're, 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 you're dying effectively day by day and they say to you, I can see you're looking a little embittered. I can see you're looking a little downcast. I want to encourage you just to shake it off. I want you to ensure, I just want you to encourage you to move on. I mean, just don't take this quite so seriously. In fact, I was reading the Bible the other day, and it says that we're supposed to forgive other people. I want to encourage you, just forgive your brothers for what they've done. What are you thinking? I'm thinking, if I take some of this dung, and I pack it real hard, and I heave it real high, I wonder if I could hit that guy in the face with it. That's what I'm thinking. That's what I'm thinking. There are 
things that happen to us in this life that we can shake off. There are slights and offenses that we experience in life that we should shake off, that we should just let go of. Times in our marriages, in our parenting, in our life at school or in the workplace or with our friends when people do stuff and we, and frankly, if we stopped every single time to, to openly, you know, counsel about this thing, we wouldn't have time for living. There are times when we just have to let things go, take a deep breath and try and get the relationship back on track, move forward into the future. There are times like that. It's the cost of living with human beings. It's the cost they pay living with us too, right? But there are also these other times, times like Joseph was living through, when we just can't shake it off. We just can't move on. Sometimes the injury is so very deep, or the injury is so very deliberate, or the injury is so very consistent and repetitive that we must do something different. What do we do? How do we forgive then? Well, I suggest to you this morning that the answer to that question may be found in the story of Joseph. And I want to look with you today at four of the steps that we may take in the direction of forgiving somebody else who has seriously wounded or wronged us. I want you to think about those four steps with me today. In those cases, the very first essential step, I believe, is to condemn the wrong. Now, that may sound surprising. It may sound like actually the opposite of forgiveness, But I want to suggest to you that the Bible teaches us that the first step in forgiveness, often the the prerequisite to real forgiveness, is to condemn the wrong. Lou Smedes writes, Love is not a soft, fuzzy sentiment that lets people get away with almost everything, no matter what they do to us. Love does not make us pushovers for people who hurt us unfairly. Love forgives, but only because it is powerful. And then Smeeds goes on to say, when you respect yourself, you set limits to the abuse you can accept from thoughtless or cruel people, even if you love them. You will not accept disloyalty from friends you trust or betrayals from spouses you love or abuse from children that you care for. What this author is saying, and I believe the scripture reinforces, is that before sin can be forgiven, it must first be condemned. Now, I think there are moments when this is not always the case. There are moments, I think, when a person is able to do the next three steps so successfully that this first step is not absolutely required. But in more situations than not, if this first step is not undertaken, then it's hard to really move to the next three steps. Somebody's got to speak up and say, this should not have been done. This was wrong. This really hurt. Somebody has to actually describe the this so that everybody around the circle understands what the this is. Because if it is not described it will be accepted, excused, and likely repeated. 
This is why Jesus says, if your brother sins against you, go talk about it behind their back. No. No. If your brother sins against you, really stew on it for the rest of your life. No. If your brother sins against you, go and show him his fault. It takes a tremendous amount of courage to do this. It is an act of immense vulnerability, frankly, to do this. Somebody came up to me recently and said, you know, back in the conflict years of the church, (laughs) I was really mad at you. You really hurt me. I hated some of the decisions you made. I have forgiven you, but I need to tell you how hard that was for me, how painful it was for me. It took courage and vulnerability for that person to say that to me. It was an important part of the journey of forgiveness for that person. It, if this callousness, this evil, this injustice, this insensitivity is not rooted up and not named, as I said, it is so easy for it to become accepted, excused, or repeated. Now, in the story that we read in Genesis 50, it is clear that the brothers in the story came to condemn the act they had done themselves. What if Joseph holds a grudge against us, they say? What if he pays us back for all of the wrongs that we did to him? In other words, the brothers know they've done wrong. In fact, they know that it's so wrong that if they got the payback, the actual payback that they justly deserve for what they'd done, it would be a very bad thing. And they're scared of what that retribution might actually look like. So they sent word to Joseph saying, your father left these instructions before he died. Their father had called them into account himself when he discovered what they'd done. He'd made them. He'd, he had forced them. He had condemned the wrongdoing themselves to, to them and forced them to look at it. And now, Acting on the advice of the brother, they write to Joseph, of the father, they write to Joseph, I ask you to forgive your brothers the sins and the wrongs they committed in treating you so badly. No excuses, no attempt to explain. These were sins, these were wrongs. We treated you so badly. Now please forgive the sins of the servants of the God of your father. Now this is the ideal situation. Okay? Let's just acknowledge that. Ideally, the person who's done the wrong thing will confess it and condemn it themselves. Uh, They will just, they will come to terms with the reality um, themselves. That is the ideal situation. I say it's ideal for a couple of reasons. One, because it is the ultimate goal of forgiveness to establish reconciliation. The ultimate end or purpose or desire of forgiveness is to bring about the restoration of relationship. God is all about relationship. He set the world up by relationships, certain relationships human beings would have with him, relationships with the creation, relationships with one another. God is about relationships, and sin is what breaks relationships. So forgiveness is the way that God seeks to restore the harmony, the connections, the relationships that give life. 
And God ultimately wants us to be involved in that process of restoration with him. For a variety of reasons, however, the ideal is not always the possible. Why? Well, sometimes the people aren't even around to restore the relationship with. They've died. They've moved across the planet. They won't speak to you. Other times, the people involved will not confess and certainly not condemn the wrongdoing. And if relationship is to be restored, if reconciliation is to happen, there has to be confession, condemnation, repentance, turning from the old behavior and toward the new behavior. That is required for reconciliation to occur. The Apostle Paul says that as far as it depends upon you, live at peace with everyone. Okay? As far as it depends upon you, cross as much distance as you possibly can to seek relationship. But you will not always be able to close the entire distance. Again, why? People don't always stay around this earth or they move away. But there are also those times when, when they are not willing actually to come your way at all. Is it your responsibility in those moments to continue to go their way? Is it your responsibility to, 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 to keep putting yourself in the way of their harm doing? Jesus says no. Do not cast your pearls before swine. Do not throw your pearls before pigs, Jesus says. For all of the motivations that we explored together last week, I think that Christians will be inclined to spend more time in the pig pen than normal people. Okay? I believe that, that it will be the uh, emblem of a Christian. It will be a sign of Christianity that, that we are willing to go further with pigs than most people would. Right? Think how far Jesus went. Think of the, uh, of the experience of, of what he left behind in eternity and the conditions he walked into here. But Jesus says, even if it is your inclination to forgive someone, even though I call you to forgive someone, that does not mean you have to continue to roll in the mud with them. A woman shared with me after a service a couple weeks ago how pain she was at the thought of, of going back into a relationship with a relative that was so hurtful and abusive and had not come to terms with that. And she said, I, I, I forgave this person, but do I have to be in close relationship with them? And I answered by saying, you forgive a scorpion for being a scorpion but you are not obliged to keep putting your hand in the scorpion's nest. You're not obliged to keep going back to the pig pen. Though, if you are like Jesus, you may be inclined to go there a bit more often than the average person. Whether it is relationship with God or with another person, if there's not eventual confession and actual repentance, 
then forgiveness may help the forgiver, it may honor God, but it cannot lead to its ultimate purpose, which is reconciliation. And the grace of forgiving and moving on will have to be enough. So what is the first step? What's the first step in moving toward forgiveness? What is it? Condemn the wrong. Condemn the wrong. And what is the second? The second is to relinquish your right to get even. Now I'm going to say something to you that you probably have never heard a pastor say to you before. Getting even is your natural right. Getting even is your natural right. In a limited sense, getting even is actually justice. This is why the oldest and most widely observed law on this planet is an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. This is why Lady Justice gets pictured as holding scales, right? And the goal is to balance out those scales evenly. It is both just and your right to get even. Even though civilized societies, I think wisely, have delegated that right to governments uh, out of a recognition that it is often very difficult for people to simply get even. It is very difficult for us to really get even to keep retribution from getting out of hand. And it does get out of hand, doesn't it? Whether it's the Hatfields and the McCoys or the Corleones and the Sopranos, nobody feels like they've ever truly evened the score. I've had two of my family members murdered in cold blood, taken in the prime of life, and in both cases, the criminals were caught and went away for a long time, in a a sense consigned to a living death. Did it put us even? No, it didn't put us even. If they had actually been uh, put to death in front of me, would that have put us even? I would tell you, no. It would not have felt like we were even. And that's the way it is in this world. We always want a bit more. You kill my sister, then I take your whole household. Then you take my whole skyscraper. Then I take your whole city. And it goes on. It just goes on like this. Everyone feeling justified, nobody truly getting even. It's just more pain, more self-righteous anger, more hopeless retribution. That is why somebody, as I said last week, has to break the chain. Somebody has to relinquish their natural right to get even. Somebody has to choose a way like God does. This is what God does. This is the God we meet in Jesus Christ. He does not take our lives, though it was his right to do so. He actually gives his. He gives his. He takes the condemnation upon himself. And Joseph reflects this orientation too. If anybody ever had a right to exact his pound of flesh from the other people, it is Joseph after all that he had suffered from them. 
What you may not know, if you're not very familiar with Joseph's story, is that if anybody also had the means to exact the pound of flesh, to get even, it was Joseph. Because by the time that we meet him in Genesis chapter 50, Joseph is not in that dungeon anymore. Joseph is a very bright, gifted of God guy. And he gets up and out of that dungeon and he gets into a position of responsibility and he rises up through the government of Egypt and he becomes second in command to Pharaoh, the king of Egypt himself. He's put in charge of all of the food stuffs that are being distributed in a time of regional calamity and famine. He's the secretary of commerce and agriculture all rolled into one. And one day, as he's exercising this office, who should come walking into the throne room looking for food? His brothers. His brothers. The fly coming to the spider. And they don't recognize him. He has become a man. And they do not recognize him. But he recognizes them. He could have done anything to him. <laughs> he could have had them stretched out and filleted in front of him. And finally, he just tells them who he is. And they quake in terror at what this obviously means for them. And they beg for his forgiveness like one of those Clint Eastwood movies where the scurrilous scoundrel that you just want to see shot begs, whimpers at the end, and Clint has to finally finish them off. It's just like that. One of those scenes, right? But here's what the Bible says happens. When their message came to him, Joseph wept. What do you make of that? Was it the grief of all of the buried pain that he had suffered at their callous hands that made him cry? Did the grief just suddenly come welling up in him? Was it the emotional struggle of wrestling with the temptation to have them just slaughtered right there in front of him that resulted in those tears? Was it the, the, the rising up of some bizarre impulse for reconciliation that began to burble up in him like that hopeful little boy once burbled as he looked up in admiration at his brothers? What was it? Maybe it was all of these things flowing together, anguish, Revenge, hope, all flowing together like they flow together inside of you and me at those moments when the impulse to forgive, the moment and opportunity of forgiveness rises up before us. What we know for sure 
is that in the miracle of that particular moment, Joseph relinquished his right, the one he could have easily exercised to get even. And then we see Joseph taking the third step of forgiveness. We see Joseph choosing to release the wrongdoers from guilt. In other words, Joseph doesn't just refuse to take from them what he could. Joseph actually gives to them what he did not have to give. Right? He gives it to them. He releases them from their guilt. What they could never obtain for themselves, he gives them an opportunity for freedom from the terrible weight of what they had done. Genesis says, his brothers then came and threw themselves down before him. We are your slaves, they said. But Joseph said to them, don't be afraid. Am I in the place of God? There's a wonderful humility and irony in those words. Joseph is very humble here in recognizing that God's job is to exact the ultimate judgment. Vengeance is mine, says the Lord. I will repay. Trust me to give justice. But Joseph understands that before God, he too is in need of grace. There's also an irony in Joseph's words. When he says, I am I in the place of God, the reality is that for all intents and purposes, he is in this moment. He has the power, ultimate godlike authority over life in that throne room. He could have done anything he wanted to them, but Joseph chooses instead to give them a whole fresh start. As God does with us, an opportunity to begin again. He offers the equivalent of Jesus saying to the woman caught in adultery, I condemn what you have done, but I do not condemn you. I release you from your past. Go and sin no more. Create a future. Let me say in conclusion that even where we have condemned the wrong or relinquished our right to get even or released others from guilt, most of us will find it very difficult to simply forget the pains that we've suffered at the hands of others. Isn't that right? It's hard. People talk about forgiving and forgetting. We could do a whole message on that theme. But I think this is where the fourth and last step I want to touch on today is especially important. I want to invite you to practice redemptive remembering. Luce Mead says that redemptive remembering is the choice we make to focus not on the pains that we have suffered, but on love emerging from ashes, on light that sheds darkness, on hope that survives remembered evil. Look how Joseph does this here. You intended to harm me, he says to his brothers. Has Joseph forgotten all of the years he's lost with his father? All of the agonies he's suffered as a slave? All of the indignities and difficulties he'd experienced in prison? Has Joseph just forgotten about this stuff? 
Absolutely not. Absolutely not. But Joseph now chooses to look at all of that experience in the light of the way that God was using and had used that bizarre, unchosen, undesirable experience in his life. He sees how it had humbled him. He sees how it had driven him into a deeper dependence upon God. He saw how it had exposed him to new relationships and placed him now in a position of much greater compassion and influence upon the welfare of other people. You intended to harm me, he says, but, redemptive but, God intended it for good. God allowed it to happen because he saw that it just might accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. So then, he says, don't be afraid. I will provide for you and your children. And he reassured them and spoke kindly to them. Wow. Who are the brothers? Who are the brothers or the sisters? What's the name of one of them? That you might actually pursue the path of forgiveness toward. Has that person hurt you? expose you to suffering greater than Joseph experienced or Jesus experienced. Have they? What path will you choose to walk in the days to come? Could it possibly be the one that Joseph walked that Jesus blazed for us? Can you let the good news that rings from your lips and from your life be this one very powerful word? Say it with me. Forgiven.